Good evening and welcome to Pastor's Class as we continue our study through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. As we've completed our study of 1st Thessalonians, we'll begin in chapter 1 of 2nd Thessalonians tonight. So if you have your Bibles there with you, we'll be in the first five verses of 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking at these few verses. We have a handout available for you if you want to follow along with the main points of what we're looking at tonight. And as usual, we are still continuing to use the Christ-centered exposition commentary to guide our time using the points that come from it in uh, different ways. So if you'd like to pick up that resource, we'd love to have uh, you read along with us as we go uh, through this study. As we begin chapter one, uh, the main idea here of 2 Thessalonians is when a church is grounded in its faith, it will be fruitful in its work. And so tonight we'll look at the grounded faith of these believers as we we're looking at the introduction to this book which sometimes is easy to graze over but there's some helpful components here in this chapter now the the church here unlike some other letters that paul writes is to a really healthy growing group of believers he has some ways in which he admonishes them but overwhelmingly he commends them he does that in uh, the first letter he writes to them and then this second letter which is only coming uh, just probably months later it's not long after the first letter arrives that Paul writes a second letter uh, to this church and so uh, this church still had persecution going on and so he wanted to encourage them in the midst of the persecution they had uh, false teachers you know and if you remember from the first book we talked about the the Lord's Day and there was debate about when it was going to happen and so he was countering that argument and he'll, he'll bring that back up in this uh, second letter as well and he's also going to admonish lazy Christians because as you start to think about the Lord's Day coming uh, you start to lay off in whether you're going to be driven for the Lord's work and so he's going to admonish them as well so these are all some of the same themes he's dealt with uh, prior but overall the theme is commending these believers he's boasting on them that's what happens in the first book just the people have heard about their faith all throughout and so because of that he is encouraging this group of believers now if you remember when paul uh, was there before when the church was planted uh, the first week of the study uh, pastor kyler dealt with some of the backstory on this but when the church was planted uh, they were run out of town because of persecution at the very end uh, they, they felt uh, their life was threatened. An angry mob of Jews came up against them, and uh, they fled town. And so you can imagine that uh, when this work of the Lord was happening in this key city, uh, the, Satan was not happy and was not thrilled that the Lord was using this church. And so just because um, Paul and, uh, and the founders of the church had been run out of town, it didn't mean that there was still not going to be opposition. And so this church, even in its faithfulness, was facing quite a bit of persecution. And so we'll look at their faith in the midst of this persecution. We'll even see it here in these uh, first five verses. And so we'll, we'll have four marks tonight, or four reasons that we should be thankful uh, for these believers. And so different reasons we should be thankful for the believers. The first one, if you have your notes there, uh, is that we are thankful for a faith that is real. A faith that is real. And so faith can be in anything. You say you're a person of faith or that you have faith in something. Well, you can have faith in anything in the world. Uh, you can have faith in false things. You'll find that out sometimes in life. You'll put your faith in something and it will fail you because you should have never put your faith in that. And so these Thessalonian believers have a real faith. 
they've placed it in something that is solid and trustworthy. So I have three uh, sub points to this one uh, of why this faith was so real and authentic. The first one is real faith is connected. So when you have real faith in the Lord, it's going to be connected to a local body of believers. Look there in verses 1 and 2 of the introduction. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he introduces his letter, he writes it to an audience. You notice it's to the church of the Thessalonians. It's to an organized group of believers. I've been asked over the years as people will interact with church, and when you start talking about joining a church or being a member of the church, they, they wonder, where is that in the Bible? Where does it say that you must be a member of a church and you see it in this quiet undercurrent behind every book that you read in the New Testament as these letters come in the church is there quietly behind it so just think for me uh, for a moment about what kind of church is defined here that there is a church that the letter is written to, so that means there is an organized group of believers that are defined as the audience of this, so that we know of this letter. So we know that there, there's a directed group on the other end of this. We also know that the group was local. It's not some, you know, people want to just be a part, well, I'll just be a part of the general church. No, he, he calls it the church of the Thessalonians. So this church is is from that town and a specific group of people in that town are this church. And so we know the church is a local, an organized body. It's a local group, but we also know there's clear lines of membership. There is a defined group here that Paul knows he's writing to. People that are members of this church. You see it throughout the New Testament. You may not realize it when the Bible talks about church discipline, and you were, if you were to have somebody that falls into unrepentant, they, they don't repent of the sin, and it's outward where everybody can see it, and it's serious in nature. If somebody goes into that kind of pattern of behavior, and when confronted about that sin, they're completely unrepentant over it, the Bible calls us for, to, for us to put that person out of the fellowship of believers. They are, that's where the term excommunicated, they are removed from community, the uh, communion of believers. They are removed from the church. So if you are to remove somebody, they have to actually already be a member of that body of believers. So if that all that's true, when Paul begins to write this letter to the church of the Thessalonians, behind this is a clear picture of an organized local group of believers that are members of one another. They are a part of this body. And so even out of the gate when you see this solid grounded faith, it's found, one of the reasons that we can know this is a real faith, it's found inside of the body of the church. And so if you're going to have genuine faith, uh, a good mark and a sign of that is that you are a part of a local church. But not only is this faith connected, it's also grounded. The faith is grounded in, and I'll point to two phrases here 
that the faith is grounded in. If you notice there in verses 1 and 2, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and then here's the phrase, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll repeat it again right below that, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's writing this letter, and he says it's in God the Father, and it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he speaks about God the Father, we're, we're hearing a picture of a God who is providing for us, who is caring for us. It's a, it's a protective uh, way of seeing uh, God. And, and God is not just protective of us, he's also a disciplining God, which we'll see here at the very end of our study. But God the Father caring for us, and then the other phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an authoritative Lord that is giving us purpose in life. And so when he, he's writing this letter, it's found in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these fundamental truths of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are at the core of what ties this group of believers together. They have a common, grounded faith. And so if you're going to be growing like these Thessalonians, you have to be grounded in the Father and in the Son. It's a common language. You even get the sense here, as Paul writes it, as he repeats himself, he's writing the letter in these things to them in the peace. So it's, it's as if this is a common language. On his end, he's writing it in Christ, and then when they receive it, they hear it through Christ. That we as Christians speak a different language because we're found in Christ. So this letter only makes sense to be written by a Christian and then read by a Christian on the other end because we're all a part of this same grounded faith in the Father and in the Son. Now let's look at a third just supporting way in which their faith is genuine. It is a growing faith. Real faith is growing. Look, look at the text there. We'll skip down to verse 3 at the beginning for this point. We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Growing abundantly. So what a strong statement about their faith. Wouldn't you love for somebody to describe you that way? That your faith is growing abundantly? That it has this active kind of rapid growth that there is this marked change that you can see think about something growing abundantly i feel like right now uh, the weeds in my yard grow abundantly it's the time of year when you can't spray enough weed killer there's always a new set of weeds somewhere i and you can kill them one week and they pop up they grow so fast they grow abundantly. It's noticeable how much growth is going on. And so that's, that's in my mind, the description of the believers here is they are growing rapidly. They're growing in a pace that you can notice what's going on in their life. This is how we should be. I, we should be growing at a marked change where people can see it. That's why that earlier in the first Thessalonians, it's like people are talking about your faith everywhere because you're growing at such a rapid pace. There is marked growth in their life. And, and notice in that phrase as well, look back at verse three. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for 
you brothers as is right. So let's unpack it for a moment. First, he says we ought to give thanks. So there is a level of encouragement they're giving them in their growth. Don't underestimate what encouragement means to a growing believer. And if you want to see them grow more, encouragement is the fuel by which you can help press them to more. So you should look around and if you see people growing in the faith and maybe you want to see them grow more, encourage them. Give thanks. And here's what's interesting. He doesn't give them thanks. He doesn't say, I'm so thankful to you for your growth. His, his is a bit indirect. He says, I give thanks to God for you. Why do you think he thanks God? Because God is the one who saves, but God's also the one growing them. And so that's how we ought to act. We ought to be thankful to God for what he's doing in the life of a person. And we should encourage them with that thanks. And he goes as far to say, this is right for you to do. You should not shy away from going to somebody and saying, I thank God for what he's doing in your life because we should encourage people that way. And so as we see people that are grounded in their faith, they're connected to the body of Christ, and we see them abundantly growing in their faith, we as Christians should be there cheering them on, telling them how well they're doing. So just maybe as a point of application right now, as you're listening, pull out your phone or pull out some means of communication or when we're done, pick up the phone and call somebody or text them and tell them how um, how much you are thankful for what the Lord's doing in their life. Just straight out of this, as Paul's admonishment to you, tell somebody how thankful you are for what God's doing in their life today. That's an easy way as Christians we can affirm other believers. And so that's part of this genuine faith. It's grounded, it's connected, it's also growing at this rapid pace. And then these type people, we should be encouraging them. But here's a second mark or a second reason that we should uh, really admire and be thankful for these believers is that a love that they have a love that grows strong. Th their love grows strong. Look at verse three. We'll look at the second half this time. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So the love that they have for one another is growing. So we have this marked growth in their, their uh, walk with the Lord, but there's this marked growth in love towards one another. The way you can see faith growing is that love for other people grows. Now, I mentioned at the very beginning there, this church, the church, church at uh, the Thessalonian church. Now, that's the one another in this verse. So what he's observing is not love for all people. He's saying the love for one another is increasing. So he's noticing that their faith is being exhibited by the family love they have for one another. There is a, the Bible gives a different obligation to love the church family versus the rest of the world. And I'm not saying we don't love other people. We, don't lo we love all people. 
However, there is a greater obligation we have to take care of, to love and to serve other Christians. And so he notices here a marked difference in how they care for and love one another. Because you realize that our love for one another isn't just, a, isn't just to show how mature we are. It actually exhibits the gospel to the world. In John 13, Jesus will say to his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so as a church, people will mark us out and know our faith from the world side of things by how we love one another. It's a marked uh, point of being a Christian is how much we care for and love each other. And so for this Thessalonian church, he notices even in their young faith, it is rapidly increasing how they love and they serve each other and they care for each other and they're running to each other's needs and they're thinking about one another so that what ought to happen as a church is that if there's a person who's not a Christian and they sit, they're sitting outside the Christian community and they look in on it and they think, man, I, I want to be a part of that. I want people to love me like that. And so there's an attractive nature of the church. They don't sit back and look and say, well, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. They sit back and look and see in, inside of there looks like a great place to be and, it, and it's attractive to them. And that's part of what draws them in to the gospel. And so this, this group of believers is known for how they love and care for each other. Now, that's all being exhibited in this culture of or this environment of suffering that they live in. They're being persecuted where they're at. And so marks of their faith goes beyond just simply this love. It goes on for how they handle opposition and persecution. So the third reason that their faith is uh, genuine and marked out is that they have a hope that goes deep, a hope that goes deep. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and, in, and afflictions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So he's, he's noticing this steadfast and faithful way in which they endure persecution and afflictions. You see, these afflictions have come against them and they've felt like uh, they can be painful, they can be difficult. These have to feel like setbacks. But because of the way their faith is built, he's noticing that they're steadfast and they have this deep faith that exists during this. Now, the word steadfast here doesn't mean that they are just passively just trying to take it long enough and hope they make it through it. Because sometimes I think if you have a bad day or go through something, I think well, anybody can do anything for an hour. 
So even if it's terrible, you might can endure it for an hour and it'll be over. Or you might uh, think that maybe they're just able to grit their teeth and they have enough discipline and they're just gonna, they're gonna make it through it. But that's not what steadfastness is carrying here. In the book, there's a good uh, quote from one commentator. It says that steadfastness describes the spirit which does not only patiently endure the circumstances in which it finds itself, but which masters them and uses them to strengthen its own nerve and sinew. It accepts the blows of life, but in accepting them, it transforms them into stepping stones to new achievement. So for the Christian, suffering and affliction and persecution gets flipped over. That's why Paul will say that he'll gladly boast in his thorn and his flesh and his weaknesses. That those things are actually the power of God existing in him. That's why James will say he considers it pure joy whenever he faces trials of many kinds. Because he knows what those trials are going to do with him. That's why uh, Paul in Romans, he'll say that, he, that now, through a, no matter what we face, we are super conquerors. No matter what we face, we are going to overcome, and we're not just going to overcome, we're going to flip it over, and what was meant for us, Romans 8, 28, is actually going to be used for our good, so that when they endure, they're not just simply managing to get through, they're able to see that the persecutions and the sufferings and the afflictions of their life are actually used for the glory of God. And so as we think about whatever we're facing now, sufferings, persecutions, enduring, making it through. I hope you as a Christian are not gritting your teeth and hunkering down. I hope you're able to raise up and with confidence face what's ahead of you and say, I know that I am more than a conqueror in Christ and he's going to take whatever this bad circumstance I, I am in and flip it over for my good. It is a confident strong and deep hope that we ought to have as Christians in the midst of whatever suffering, persecution, or afflictions that we face. And so that's, a, that's what this steadfastness that he admires in the face, face of the Thessalonians uh, as their believers. Now I want to give you one fourth and final thing uh, that's marked about their faith. It's, it's a future that is secure. It's a future that is Secure. Now we're going to slide down into verse 5 for this one. If you have paragraphs there, it's actually the beginning of the next paragraph. But he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So let's try to take each phrase and talk about it for a moment. First of all, Let's talk about being worthy of the kingdom of God. Meaning that if you suffer, does that mean that you will now, after your suffering, now have earned your salvation and before you were not worthy of the kingdom of God and now you've endured these things for him and so now because you have made it through, God's going to come down, he's going to put a you know, a check by your name and a gold star by your name and say, this person is now worthy of salvation and can take you in. Well, that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is that he receives you as you are. So, 
what this has to mean is you have to flip it and say that if you are a believer, then you will face persecution and that becomes a sign of your salvation. That when you are persecuted for your faith, it then becomes a mark that this person really is a Christian. It's a confirmation, assurance of the fact you are a Christian. The book said it like this, strange as it may sound, their suffering was evidence of God's love for them, not a sign that he had abandoned them. You want to know why you can be more than a conqueror when suffering comes? Because you know that in that moment, it is a mark of being a follower of Jesus. He says, if you follow me, they're going to hate you like they hated me. You're going to face difficulties just like I did. And so that's how we know that we're a Christian. Now let's look at a, a phrase the, towards the beginning that may seem a bit perplexing if you think about it. It says, this evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So what does he mean by righteous judgment of God? You automatically, in my mind, I go to the end judgment. That this ought to be the fact that you are um, persecuted and you're counted worthy. This is an evidence that God one day is going to judge the world. That's not what it means. So we have to take it in context. Let's pull it back and say that this righteous judgment can be uh, considered like the discipline of God on those he loves. That God's kind of righteous work in us will refine us and make us more like him. In other words, uh, the writer of Hebrews will describe it this way, that those whom he loves, he disciplines. And so he's going to use discipline in your life to make you more like him. So in Hebrews, we see this connection between discipline and knowing you're a son. Here, we see the connection between persecution and you being counted worthy or being marked as a Christian. So the temptation may be to say, I'm enduring such suffering, that means God does not love me and therefore I am not a child of His. But if you are enduring persecution and suffering because of your faith, and He's working in your life to do all of these good things, and you see this steadfastness that sprouts up and grows out of you and you're growing abundantly, then it actually becomes a moment of assurance that you can have confidence that in that suffering, the Lord is marking you and telling you that you are truly a child of His. He genuinely loves you, wants to see you grow, wants to see you become more like the Son, and in your weakness, the power of God will be made manifest in your life. And out of that will be this marked nature of the genuine faith that you, do ha you have that's like the faith, faith of these believers in the Church of Thessalonians. And so you see them being marked out for this commendable faith they have. May we have faith like theirs. 
I, I pray that that can be said of all of us, that we're abundantly growing, that we're steadfast through persecutions, that we're grounded into the church and all of our life, and that we're walking in a way that some other Christian might look at us and say, I thank God for what he's doing in your life today. Let me pray for you, pray for you and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in our life to save us, but we also thank you for your work in our life to grow us and to sanctify us. And Lord, help us to be faithful, strong believers that even in the midst of suffering or difficulties, we might shine forth as confident and strong people trusting in what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.